0: Welcome back to Convinced, a podcast about religious experience and belief. If you listened to the first episode, you already know that this little podcast series is the result of a student research project I did over the summer. I'd like to remind you that with this project, my aim was to understand the internal sense of conviction that people feel in response to their religious beliefs and their experiences. How do people reason about God and their experiences of God? to be certain enough to make big life decisions. The last episode was my attempt to give you, dear listener, a tool for being able to contextualize the different ways that people see and understand the world. I offered a way of looking at the debates between religion and science by saying that these are games with different rules. I used terms like framework, lens, story, and game to get at the idea that the things we know and believe are part of systems of thinking. So I'm glad you made it to episode two. My plan for this episode is to discuss some of the ways our lenses or stories we take up for making sense of our world influence how we are able to understand the world. So what I'm saying is that our lenses influence the ways that we see things. And that might sound like an obvious statement, but I think it's important to emphasize the inputs of information that we receive do not come in without any previous ideas attached to them. Our lenses make some things stick out to us, They bring our attention to notice particular patterns and ideas. The stories we tell give significance to particular aspects of our lives. Our frameworks make sense of the things it makes sense of, and it likely ignores the rest as unusual or as outliers. In a podcast I was listening to the other day, one of the hosts, who is a psychologist, was talking about how we tend to pigeonhole people and judge them within seconds of meeting them, in order to put them in a camp of like for us or against us. And this happens so naturally. We're always trying to put people into camps so that we know if we can trust them and be safe around them. We think that people who are like us are a lot more similar to us than they actually are. And we even tend to interpret the things they say to fit into our own ways of thinking better, to make them match us. So in religion, and in particular in Christianity, Um, This judgment can include the other person's fate, so whether or not they're going to heaven or hell. So it's the difference between life and death. And we might ask things like, Oh, but are you a real Christian? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Are you, like, in this with me? And the sense of community that we can get from the inside is so sweet and comforting. It's loving and assuring. But when people are skirting around on the edges, it gets really messy. People don't know who to trust and one significant disagreement can cause great divisions. So one thing that I'm trying to do with this project is to think about the lenses as tools for understanding the world, practicing taking them on and off and being aware as much as possible of the ones that I tend to use and the ones that seem to be the most beneficial in different situations. So my desire is to better empathize with the other, and for other people to be able to listen a little more carefully to their opposition as well as to themselves. So let's take a look at how our frameworks slash beliefs slash stories slash lenses slash that influence the way we see and understand our experiences. with William James. In his lectures, James describes two kinds of people. The first is optimistically oriented, happy, and seems to ignore the bad in the world to accommodate their worldview. These are silver lining kinds of people, glass half full people. They seem to be intentionally blind towards evil, like wearing glasses that make it so you can only see green or something, because we all know that green is... Uh, evil. (laughs) The main point here is that the emotion of happiness in a person allows them to see more happiness in the world, like they're in the habit of finding the good in their surroundings. The second kind of person that James describes is, well, the opposite. They are set on seeing the bad in the world, and they are blind to the good. James describes this group as melancholic, Aware of the meaninglessness of life, feeling fragile and vulnerable because of the plight of being human, and having lost interest in life, or anhedonia, if I'm saying that right. So that sounds pretty depressing, hey? Eh? But this affect, or demeanor, just like the happiness one, influences this person's experience of the world. They seek out patterns that already fit what they know to be true as in that the world is either good or bad or meaningless or whatever. And to the melancholic person, the happy person seems shallow and blind to the reality of life. And conversely, the happy person sees the melancholic person as unmanly and diseased, according to James. They cannot see eye to eye, for they are oriented or poised to see affirmations of what they're each internally experiencing. James goes on to talk about the kinds of religious experiences these two kinds of people may have, but I'm using his illustration simply to show that our internal state or position influences our experiences and the things we accept as true. With a happy lens, it is easier to see the good things and to affirm the belief that the world is innately good. It makes sense to this person to see the world this way because it works for them. With a religious lens, That person is apt to see the world with that kind of context or story in mind. A lot of my interviewees told a story in which they received some call from God or an indication to pursue ministry, and then they were able to affirm that call or sense of direction because of opportunities that showed up to them. In most cases, we would say that these experiences happened because the people having them were understanding the world through a lens that allowed them to be attentive to the workings of God in their lives. They put the pieces of their experience together in a way that told a story about God interacting with them. So, let's look at some examples. One minister told me that he had several experiences that indicated to him that God wanted him to go into ministry. In his youth, Stephen got involved in his church and felt a pull to ministry. He believed his call was real enough to tell his boss that he wouldn't be at his job very long, but he didn't end up pursuing ministry until after retirement. He was aware of the call he felt from God during that time, but he didn't feel confident enough to pursue it until God showed up in his life in a few significant ways.
1: So I started out in a career in Toronto Toronto Transit Commission actually, and uh, when I started there, I said to my boss pretty much almost the first day that um, I won't be staying here long because I've been going to be a, a minister with the Salvation Army, um, but that didn't happen, and <coughs> the days flowed into weeks and into months and then into years, and in the whole time God was still calling and it was evident he was still calling, but I blocked my ears. One of the positions I had with the transit uh, before I was driving buses was delivering around the city mm-hmm. and uh, wouldn't you know what, more than once I had to make deliveries to the Salvation Army's training college for officers right there in Toronto and I had to actually go there and, and, I'd, and the the uh, I'm trying to think of the right words. Um, the conviction that I felt going in there, knowing that I should be staying there and not just dropping a, a delivery off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was it was so evident. I mean, I felt convicted each time I drive in there, and I'd look around and see the the other ones in training and stuff, and I thought, oh, I should be there. I should be there.
0: We can understand the conviction that Stephen felt as a result of his worldview and sense of self. In his story, he knew that he should have been at school, and it was a reminder that God wanted him there, so he felt convicted. Stephen told me that on one occasion, he and his wife were at an event in the same location when he had a profound experience.
1: Then, uh, quietly sitting there with my wife, and all of a sudden, it seemed like my blood was boiling it seemed like somebody turned up jacked up the furnace and felt like my whole insides were, were just burning like it, the, the, the temperature was just right and it wasn't that hot outside and and also at the same time um, my I couldn't hear anything my my hearing just stopped Altogether, My vision went blurred. And uh, without a doubt, God was saying to me, and it almost seemed audible, but it was, the, the words were basically, I want you here. That was it. It was so clear, crystal clear. I looked around at my wife, and she's just staring ahead. It's like as if nothing's gone on to her. Nothing was going on, right? Um, but I was sh- I was just basically shaking from that experience. I was shocked, right? And that must have lasted a few minutes, and then it was over. Um, But I've never been the same since.
0: There are ways that we could explain this experience away, but that would mean ignoring the significant impact that it had on Stephen. Because of the context of his story, he connected this experience to God and to his previous experiences with God's call in his life. Stephen tells another story about being stuck in traffic as he and his wife were on their way to an interview that would allow them to become ministers.
1: So we were stuck in bumper to bumper. Um, I'm checking the watch, I'm checking the watch, and we're starting to perspire uh, seriously. Anxiety level is, is rising. And we said, you know, we actually prayed that, that you know, God, if, if you want this for us, you got to do something, you know? we've we've got to get moving because it was it was like I think we were meeting for 10 and we were still basically in the core of the city we had to get to the other side in Scarborough so um, I figured we were still a a good 20 minutes away half hour if the traffic continued the way it was and um, I thought we were done I actually thought we were done. We're not going to make it. I'd rather be just turn around and go home than be late for something, right? And um, we got to this point and the traffic just started to move. It just, everything started to open up all of a sudden. And, and we were able to, to get through, but we couldn't have done it before. It was just from this particular moment after we, after we prayed and everything opened up. And we were able to get there. We pulled in the parking lot, uh, parked our car, walked in, and it was right on the, the nose, 10 o'clock, on the dot. And uh, one of the ladies was just coming down a flight of stairs to look for us. And we just arrived, yeah. um, answered prayer. And, and that, that, again, confirmed even more so, right?
0: Again, we could dismiss this experience as a mere coincidence, or dismiss the reasoning as a post-hoc fallacy, that because one thing followed another, that the first caused the second. But for Stephen, it meant that God was involved in his decision to pursue ministry, and that God was looking out for him and making things work out. Now here's another example. Evan, like most of my participants, grew up in the church. When he was finishing high school he was interested in going into engineering or science but he wasn't sure.
2: But then in grade 12 um, I wasn't completely confident about where I was headed I just wanted some assurance and so I prayed about it and I asked God like I'll do whatever you want me to do as long as you are clear about what you want me to do and I went to uh, uh, I guess you could call it a youth rally, uh, first one I'd ever gone to, and when I was there, the speaker asked a bunch of questions about like, all right, let's let's look at um, your personality. Let's look at what your skills are, what your interests are, what your abilities are, what your background is, what your experiences are, and. He, he brought all that and had us just kind of make personal notes and as I was writing those notes looking at my own life and background um, it started to jump out to me that well maybe teaching or something about the Bible had something to do with the direction of my life. And then um, in the final session or whatever um, the speaker was sharing about uh, a call that Jesus made to, uh, to his disciples, and it was about taking that step, that don't go part way, go, go all the way. And in that moment, I felt very clearly um, the Holy Spirit say to me a number of things, and it was absolutely clear um, that I was supposed to not go into science or engineering, Uh, I was not supposed to be in a position that I was financially secure or um, be able to be comfortable with all those dreams. Um, I felt very clearly he say, I want you to give up all your plans and dreams and I want you to be a pastor, which was a little um, overwhelming, but it was clear enough that I had no doubt.
0: When talking to his family and friends about this experience, they were not surprised, and many had thought that ministry had been his plan all along. As more and more people affirmed this sense of calling that he had, there was more clarity. Evan's experience at the youth rally was significant partially because he was able to see the connections in himself that he had never noticed before.
2: Um, So I had sat down, and I had done the math myself, and come up with, go into engineering. But then, when I told God, I will do whatever it is you want me to do. You just have to be clear about it. And months later, He said, "I want you to give all that up and go in this direction." Um, that was a that was a radical shift. And it wasn't just a radical shift because um, I heard the voice of God and so I'm just gonna go with it. It was a radical shift because I saw something that I had never seen before. It's bringing in those pieces of clarity um, that are showing me the connections and the purposes of different pieces that right now, they just kind of seem like random ideas or random attributes about my personality or my experiences. Um, but it's significant when he speaks because I'm able to see those connections. And they're pretty strong, obvious connections once you see them.
0: He agreed with me that this experience is comparable to looking at one of those old 3D pictures that looks like a mess until you put the glasses on and then you're like, Oh, of course! And the sense of clarity, along with the support of the people who knew him, was enough for him to pursue this call. Through talking with him, it was evident that he is very systematic in how he thinks about his faith and doubts as he tries to move forward with God. Part of this process has been his self-knowledge, being aware of his strengths and weaknesses, and his personality.
2: I would be the type of guy that would ask a lot of questions and have to go digging for answers and all this. And allowing myself to dig for those answers has been has been valuable um, to not be so afraid of the doubts or the questions or afraid of my strengths and weaknesses that I avoid them but to embrace them and say okay so I'm legitimately questioning whether or not the Bible is accurate or not do I just hide that and bury it and never acknowledge it or do I do some digging you do some digging um And because I've allowed myself to lean into my strengths and weaknesses, I've allowed myself to dig into those questions. And even though I still end up with, okay, so the evidence is saying this, I still don't have a hundred percent certainty because I don't know if I'll ever have a hundred percent certainty about anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I've allowed myself to, to ask the questions and dig into things and find answers to my questions or at least answers that are reasonable and rational right and so acknowledging both the kind of unmeasurable voice of God with my own personality and the analytical side, bringing that all together, um, has given me a bit of a guide of how to deal with questions and how to deal with doubts and how to deal with um, the direction of my life and what decisions to make and what decisions I should make and, and all of that. Um, and in dealing with other people, I've, I've seen the same thing that not everybody is analytical. Not everybody wants to find the answers. But I'm not them, they're not me. And it's okay. And they can wrestle with those things in a way that makes sense to them. And I think God will meet us in our personalities because he gave us our personalities. And um, so acknowledging that has given me a guide. It's given me freedom to be myself without hiding from it and burying issues that never get dealt with and create more problems. And so acknowledging, acknowledging those two sides of, of both the unmeasurable voice of God and the looking at the evidence in myself and my surroundings and embracing, I have a brain, use it, um, has, been, has been a guide for me personally and for how I'm able to help other people.
0: The two people that you've heard from so far in this episode have shown different ways of reasoning about God in their lives. Stephen saw his experiences as conviction and support of his call, and he doesn't mention an analytical thought process of the experiences in the way that Evan does. Evan's approach, as he says, involves attending to his strengths and weaknesses because he believes that God interacts with him in a way that works with his personality. A few other participants also mentioned their gifts as being part of what helped them to discern their call. For example, one minister talked about self-knowledge and God-knowledge as significant aspects that influence how they go about life. Another mentioned several times that God has given them gifts for a particular kind of work. This is Jamin.
3: When I, when I was very young in elementary school, um, when everyone else wanted to be a firefighter police officer you know at school your school project mine was I want to be a pastor one day (laughs) and um, I didn't know why I didn't know like I didn't really know what that was Um, but just was there and so as I grew older um, it just became more of a sense that uh, God's given me these type of gifts to be used and I could go do other things. I had an interest in being a history teacher. I had interest in uh, science, um, things along those lines. But whenever I pursued them, they just kind of felt empty. And then when I allowed myself, and I even took a year off after high school, before going to college, to, um, to really make sure that that's where I was supposed to go, what I was supposed to do. And so for me, it was just okay, this is what I believe that I'm called to do, so I'll just keep walking forward, and if a door closes, then I'll figure something else out, but the door never closed, so <laughs> just kept following along with that.
0: I asked what significant factors played a role in his decision to go into ministry.
3: So I would say just having those the personable relationships with people, that's kind of helped me realize like, okay, I need to be working with people I can't be hiding myself so that I would probably say would be one of the most significant factors um, just having that type of relationship and also knowing that there is that call to ministry um, Mm -hmm. and that if I tried to do something else I wouldn't have been not that I couldn't have been successful not that things would have gone wrong but I would have been missing out on what I had been designed and given gifts for. Mm -hmm. Um, So probably the call and personal relationships with people.
0: From his experience, Jamin has come to understand God as an orchestrator of giftings and of jobs. And so for him, doing anything other than his calling would be frustrating and not fulfilling. He used this point of view a few times in our conversation to explain how he has reasoned through decisions in his life. For instance, he experienced what he calls a spiritual battle when he was on mission prior to starting his school for ministry. He felt useless and without purpose, and when his team prayed over him, he felt like those negative thoughts were lifted off of him.
3: And I felt God say, um, don't worry about... What you're going to do, don't worry about if you're going to leave a lasting impact. Don't worry about any of that. Just follow me and do what I've called you to do and let me handle the rest. I still go back to that because you still struggle with that throughout your entire life.
0: Jamin trusts that God knows his desire to make a difference in people's lives. And if he is following God, he doesn't need to carry the weight of his own influence on the world.
3: It's holding on to all those truths. It's holding on to the fact that Jesus is there and he wants He wants you to know that you don't have to worry, you don't have to be anxious, you don't have to stress, you don't have to be concerned about the future because he's taking care of all that. And um, it's leaning into that and not trusting in myself to accomplish these things, but trusting in him mm-hmm. to do these things and so when there are days come that I'm just like yeah I'm done I'm throwing in the towel and then I hear the voice talk to me and, I, and it's not my own voice because my own voice is saying let's throw in the towel let's get this over with and then I hear but you still have a purpose you, there's still a reason I have you here there's still a reason why you're doing this I know it's hard just push on don't give up
4: keep going.
0: James's happy versus melancholy people. My participants understand their circumstances by what they know to be true about God and themselves from their religious experiences. When things are tough, they are able to acknowledge God's goodness and direction for the long term. They depend on the promises from God that they've learned, and they are able to continue to find meaning in what they're doing because of these narratives or lenses interesting example to consider in light of this idea is a story from Andy.
5: I identify with the dude named Jonah, where he's a prophet that doesn't want to be a prophet.
0: If you are unfamiliar with Jonah from the Bible, the story goes that God told him to go to a foreign city to warn them of God's wrath. He was scared and didn't want to go, so he went in the opposite direction and then got swallowed by a giant fish or whale and ended up going to that city anyway. In the end, more or less.
5: Right, and my teachers are like, that doesn't exist, Andy. There's no such thing as a Jonah pastor who <laughs> doesn't want to be a pastor. But I don't know how else to explain it. Like, I, if, you, if you told 21-year-old me that I'd be sitting in this office doing this interview right now, I'd have laughed in your face.
0: Andy hated the church growing up because he didn't fit, and he wasn't given opportunity to lead. Despite his mistreatment, he found connection with God through camp ministry and went to school to be a camp director. He was mistakenly put in the pastoral track, and by the time they realized the mistake, it was too late for him to switch programs. To finish the school, he had to do an internship at a church, and there, he says,
5: I felt God tell me clearly that, yes, you hate the church, but that's why I want you to be a pastor. For the kids who feel the same way you do because you know what it feels like you can be one of those voices that maybe changes the way
0: despite feeling connected to the work he did there with the youth he decided to do the same kind of work outside of church it was the kind of work that he loved to do but for some reason he hated it
5: while i was working that secular job and hating it both pastors resigned the same week while i was I was volunteering, sorry, I was volunteering there as a youth leader. Uh, Both of those pastors resigned the same week, and they asked me to come on as the interim youth pastor for a year. (laughs) And so I was like, okay. So then that happened, and uh, during that time, they convinced me that I should get my Master's of Divinity at Acadia.
0: The summer before going to Acadia, he wanted that same church to hire him as a summer student, But they said no. Andy was mad and left. But that very night, he received a call from the camp asking him to apply for an executive director position. This was his dream job. So, of course, he said yes. At the same time, Acadia misplaced his resume and put it in the pile for churches looking for ministers. So, a church contacted him and he agreed to go work there while working on his degree.
5: I went to Acadia to get my MDiv. I got hurt really bad at that church and quit ministry again. I was like, I'm done. I'm out. No more. So I, I was done I was done for a year again. But in order to finish my Mdiv, because I was I had a year left, so I'm like, I'm not gonna throw thirty grand on the toilet. So I finished and I had to do an internship at a church again.
0: Andy did counseling to heal from the hurts from the church. And he decided to apply to a pastoral position as one last try at ministry.
5: I said to God, I kind of made a deal with him. I was like, okay, first Baptist is looking. This is my fleece. I want to get in it. And I said, this is, this, is, this is it. First, if I don't get this, I'm out. I'm done. I'm, I'll figure out what I can do with this degree. There's no more for me. And if I can't survive at first, then I'm not doing it. I'm done. Anyway, here I am.
0: Gideon is a biblical character who tested a call from God by laying a fleece outside. It's in the book of Judges if you're interested.
5: So I tried to quit ministry three times. (laughs) And all three times through no fault of my own, Mm -hmm. I was almost drugged back into it. (laughs) And so I kind of just gave up and said, okay, let's do it.
0: (laughs) Andy says that he didn't feel like he had much choice about going into ministry, hence the comparison to Jonah. But he also attributes some of his story to the way he responds to life, accepting that life is in constant flux and that anything could happen.
5: I think that everything is redeemable. And so when it comes to those situations that I was talking about where I would lose thousands of dollars and lose three years of my life that I work toward if I don't finish it you know uh I think it's got to do with just allowing control to slip a little bit and just see what happens mm-hmm. if you pursue it so that's I think the influences that I am willing to go out on a limb yeah
0: he talks deliberately about a quote-unquote god lens that he uses to navigate life
5: God has things laid out the way he has them laid out because his mind is bigger than ours he sees more of the picture than we do and we are in no way shape or form on any level close to what he comprehends and sees (laughs) so so when we look at these experiences uh, we only know what he's chosen to reveal to us and it's by those experiences that we can develop my lens is influenced differently than yours is So, which is why I'm a pastor because I want people to experience the things that are important like that and so the way they influence me is that my experiences actually this is the whole basis of what faith is, is my experiences the experiences that I have with God in his presence and the way he interacts with me are the basis by which I am so confident in my answer to you if you Minutes ago when I said there's absolutely nothing in this planet, in this world that can happen to me that will cause me to walk away from my faith in God because of those experiences. So not the experience itself, but the fact that I know what it is, but I know who God is and I know who God has shown himself to be. And because of those experiences that I've had, I can say confidently that that is not who he is.
0: And he says that it is not the events of the experiences that influenced him, but it's by having experience that he gains something, maybe an interaction with God or a knowledge of God. It seems as though he thinks about life a little differently because of it, that he understands something about himself and about the state of being because of this God lens that he has.
5: Uh, When we went there, we couldn't find a house. We packed everything into a U-Haul and just drove across the ferry and hoped we'd find something before the nightfall came. Found one. Right? And then... Every single time we ran out of money and almost ran out of food, something happened. So government messed up for a year and didn't give me my GST checks. The day our oil ran out of oil, we had four checks for $236 in the mailbox. I just I understand who he is, and I understand what we live in. And that's a big part of the problem, because the world doesn't understand what they're living in.
0: Even though his faith and belief in God is very stable, Andy was recently considering quitting ministry because of several tragic and painful situations that recently happened in a short span of time. Practicality is what kept him working, since his religious degrees don't transfer outside of church work, and he still attributes this reason of practicality to God.
5: So yes, uh, the practicality of how am I going to support my family kept me here, but in the same note, I recognized that my doubt in my abilities came through the situations that I was struggling in. So thank heavens I had that, you know, because now, you know, I started work again in April and I'm further ahead.
0: Okay, we're almost to the end of this episode, but there's a few more things that I'd like to say before we finish. First, as you've been listening through these stories, I hope you've been thinking of our main question. How do people reason about God and belief, and how that connects to our sense of conviction? And I hope you've been practicing the tool of frameworks and lenses to understand the reasons that people give. Second, I feel the need to talk about doors for a brief minute.
1: We were quite willing to, to to not go down that road if it wasn't God's will, you know? So we always said, if any of the doors close, well, okay, fine. That's our answer. We'll not bother, but the doors kept opening, one after the other, after the other. You know, lots of prayer, um, you know, Lord, if uh, you know if this is of you, um, sort of open the door, although I don't think every door is necessarily of God. <laughs>
0: There were a lot of references to this idea of open doors in the interviews. It's a phrase that communicates the ease of logistics after an unusual decision that someone up there has been looking out for you or is leading you in a particular direction. People tend to feel supported and affirmed in their decisions when things are working out. And I think certain lenses lead people to see more of these kinds of signs from above. Especially if you make a decision that you think God is leading you into, you would likely be on the lookout for evidence that you've made the right decision. Will does a good job of talking about how he thinks about open doors.
6: And the speaker that night was talking about giving up everything for God. Like, he said, everybody holds something back. So what are you holding back? And I thought, this is so stupid. Like, I've been doing this my whole life. This isn't the first time I've heard this message. Not at all. Like... I've already given God everything God wants. So I said, I don't know, God. Like, I guess you can have my car or my friends or whatever. But then I thought, oh, and you can have my future. Like, it's already settled. You know, I was 17, so of course my whole future is settled. Um, And then later that weekend, I felt a a clear and distinct call to ordained ministry, uh, which was so strange and so outside what I had ever wanted or thought about that I sort of took it seriously because it just didn't seem right certainly a 90 degree change from everything I'd been planning and the more I examined it the, the more genuine it seemed to be and and then like um over the next little while doors started to open like I went to school my friend decided to go to university too and we looked at the University of Victoria and uh it turns out that in 2001 there was a steep discount on tuition there. It was 1995 tuition levels. So it was half the price of a university in Alberta. But I took this uh, this this year of half-price tuition as a sign, right? As a moment from God, like, this is the right direction. And, like, when I learned some actual theology, like, it's hard. It's really... Troubling sometimes to think like that because it kind of opens up the other idea that if things weren't working out for me, if I was struggling or mentally unwell or physically unwell or you know just didn't get jobs that I wanted, would that mean I was going the wrong direction? Because right,
0: not necessarily. Know. Yeah. Yeah.
6: So it's hard. Like it's a, it's an internal discernment thing. I think I don't take everything working out for me as proof that God loves me, but there's been some things that have sort of stood out as this is the right, Mm
0: -hmm. the right thing. Even though he took the open doors as a confirmation of his call originally, he has since thought about the way he takes these signals in his life. For instance, if things going well means that God is involved in leading you somewhere, what does that say about when things are going poorly? You wouldn't want to say that God is not working in the lives of people who are not doing well, because that feels wrong. It doesn't fit the image of a loving God who is always at work in human life that we are taught about in the Christian tradition. When we use a Christian lens, there are particular beliefs about God that are incompatible and uncomfortable. To reason, then, about where God is at work in a person's life involves reasoning between the lived experience and the given beliefs. If life is going poorly isn't a sign of God's neglect, does this then disqualify the use of open doors as a sign of God's leading? Another minister, Lloyd, was careful with his language as he spoke about God working and showing up in his life.
4: All of a sudden, I had access to these funds that were going to help pay for my education. And uh, some might say God was at work there. Uh, You can use that language if you want. Um, I I prefer to see it as the community coming together to support, and things just kind of Mm -hmm. fell into place.
0: He recognizes that this financial support could be interpreted as God's intervention, and perhaps that is how he first understood the event. But to better fit his own framework, he adds the caveat that there are other ways of understanding the event that are still meaningful. I think his beliefs about God have changed over time and informed this small comment, as he later explains how he currently thinks about God.
4: I'm at this interesting place in my life now where I would have said 25, 30 years ago that, that there was this feeling, and I could probably point to a couple of instances when I was on retreat or... Sitting under a tree at my grandfather's property, that that some I I would have said then that God was present in that moment and and a, and 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 kind of put God's seal on all those other feelings that I had of being affirmed and encouraged and supported. Um, I don't say that anymore. Um, God is god is not something that i need to personify anymore um, that the mystery that we call the divine is that affirmation in community it is that support it is that love that catches us when we fall and helps us set us on our way So. I, I don't, I don't need to personify that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that I choose not to perfo- personify it, does it mean that it's any less God at work? No, not at all, because God is at work through human beings.
0: For Lloyd, God is not restricted to work in a particular kind of way, and he is able to see God in a broader sense as he now goes about his life. So again, there's this idea that we tend to see things in the way that we want to see them. We account for our belief systems and fit, or retrofit, our experiences into these frameworks that we use. Wittgenstein said on this subject, quote, Suppose somebody made this guidance for this life, believing in the last judgment. Whenever he does anything, this is before his mind. In a way, how are we to know whether to say he believes this will happen or not? Asking him is not enough. He will probably say he has proof, but he has what you might call an unshakable belief. It will show, not by reasoning or by appeal to ordinary grounds for belief, but rather by regulating for in all his life. End quote. It is this habit of regulating for the beliefs, ground us that makes those beliefs immune to argumentation because they are held in a place of such importance. These unshakable beliefs inform our way of going about the world. So, to summarize this episode, looking at the world with a God story can orient us to see God working because it makes us more attentive to seeing God-like patterns. Religious people, and especially ministers, because of their understanding of the world and of God, are more likely to notice and understand events in a God context. Certain experiences will take on particular meaning that could be dismissed as coincidence to someone who is not practicing a religious framework.
1: When I when I interpret the world and when I interpret what I see going on in our ministry and our church and, and around me, um, I see a lot more of God's involvement and God's work in in very mundane things. And I think that's how God works Uh, way more than the spectacular big events. Though we would really like those because those are really cool.
0: As he says, these religious experiences can be big ones or they can be small ones in the everyday. I want to thank you for lasting all the way through the second episode with me. Uh, I have one more in the works so stay tuned for that. Until next time, thanks for listening.